Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Spirit of God, fashion today's chaos into new life, fill our weary hearts with hope and make love manifest today. Amen. And please be seated. We are currently in our Lent sermon series titled Animating Images. This series is attempting to recapture ancient Christian imagination by engaging the Apostles' Creed. However, to be clear, rather than using the Creed to explicate faith, Uh, that needs to be believed. These statements need to be believed or else. This series is inviting us to ponder creedal statements as icons that have the ability to rouse our imagination and animate our lives by divine love. In the early church, the Apostles' Creed was used as a a catechism to help new believers uh, think through what it meant to follow after Jesus, and then during the season of Easter, they would be baptized. And so for millennia, human beings have engaged this ancient creed throughout Lent as a way to more deeply ponder the ways of Jesus. So far, we've covered the creed statements about God and Jesus. This morning, we're going to move on to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, as well as three statements about Christian life, church, communion, and forgiveness. These words belong to the part of the creed that reads, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, and the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Uh, We're going to pull up a painting here. This is a painting that we looked at a couple weeks ago. It's by 19th century Arminian painter Ivan Avazovsky. It's titled, And the Spirit of God Moved on the Face of the Waters. It's a stunning painting. It reminds us of the creation story in Genesis chapter 1. You'll recall the Spirit of God is hovering over the chaos. Hovering over the chaos, hoping, dreaming, and longing to bring about new life. And I think that's a good place to begin when thinking about the Holy Spirit. For where there is chaos in our lives and in this world, so there also is the Spirit of God hovering over that chaos, hoping, dreaming, about bringing something new into this world. For you see, chaos, another word for chaos, could be death. Where there is death, so also is the Holy Spirit. Pulsing, energy, new life possibility in every single moment of death. It's as if every tomb could actually be renamed womb, holding within itself the hope of something spectacularly new. In the Hebrew, the word for holy is kadesh, which means consecrated or set apart. Uh, Agios in the Greek means the same thing. And then there's the Hebrew word ruach, which means breath, breeze, 
wind. And the Greek word for this is pneuma, spirit, breath, wind. And so you see the Holy Spirit is divine breath. Isn't that beautiful? Divine breath hovering over chaos like we see in Genesis chapter 1, fashioning new life here, now, and today. But it's more than that. In Genesis chapter 2, we see God fashion dirt into the shape of Adam, man, and then God breathes into man, giving him life. And so I guess you could say that the Holy Spirit inspires our lives, inspires our lives. Well, what exactly does it mean to be inspired? Well, that's another Greek word, theonoustos, theos from God, and noustos connected to pneuma for spirit or wind. And so to be inspired is to be God-breathed. That's as simple as it gets. A few thoughts. What does it mean to be God-breathed? What does it mean to be inspired? Well, Isaiah 63 explains that Israel sinned and that their sin grieved the Holy Spirit. And so I guess you could say God's Spirit experiences heartache due to our chaos and less than inspired lives. Perhaps it's this Holy Spirit grief that we know in our knowing, you know, when we, when we feel bad about something. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's that Spirit of God inside of our own souls reminding us that we are off the path or that we've lost our way or that we're in desperate need of return, literally repentance. We're in desperate need of return to our deepest and truest selves. For it is so easy to lose ourselves in this world, is it not? But I think it's more than just feeling bad about being off the path that is ours to walk, for we humans are inspired in all kinds of beautiful ways. Like Jacob was fleeing from his brother, scared for his life, and as he slept, he had this dream, and he saw this staircase rising to heaven, and angels were going up the staircase and down the staircase, and he woke, and he was inspired, and he declared Bethel, which means the very house of God. For Jacob, it's as if in this moment that he realized that every place, not just uh, homes or religious spaces, but every place on this planet is somehow sacred and hallowed. And then there's Moses at the very end of himself, utterly overwhelmed by Israel's problems in the desert, and we're told that he was inspired to touch the rock. And water came gushing out, bringing refreshment to all of Israel. Eli bore witness to Hannah weeping, just weeping with a broken heart, and he was inspired, and he declared, you shall have a child. Elijah was on the run and full of fear when he was inspired, and we're told that he heard. He heard the divine, not in the quaking or in the thundering or in the lightning or in the crashing, but he was inspired to hear the divine in the silence. And of course, Jesus was again and again inspired. His inspiration moved him to feed the hungry and to heal the hurting and to rebuke the religious proud and to forgive the sinner. And then there's Peter, the one to whom Jesus was inspired to say, the church is going to be built on you. And like his Lord, Peter was also inspired. He had a beautiful dream that nothing is unclean. Everything. Everything is spectacularly holy. 
And then in Revelation, John was inspired. He saw the sky split open and heaven came down and wed with earth. And we're told that heaven and earth, that which is spiritual and that which is physical, became one. And there was a city of light and there was no sun because love was the light. And all was at peace because there was a lamb, not a lion, but a lamb in the center of it all. You see, we humans, every living human is inspired. Call it inspiration, call it grief, call it conviction, call it gumption, call it a dream or a vision for your life or for this world, call it integration. Whenever chaos is fashioned into life, or whenever grief is fashioned into change, or whenever fragments are fashioned into wholeness, or whenever a person or or moment is anything less than love, but then it becomes more and more loving, then you see we are being inspired by the Spirit of God in our knowing, to participate in new life today. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Can we show the second picture? We looked at this last week. It's by 15th century Italian painter, the great Leonardo da Vinci. It's titled Last Supper. We'll leave it on the screen and come back to it in just a bit. I want to begin by saying the word Catholic often, for most of us, refers to the Roman Catholic Church. But it's also a Greek word, katholikos, which is a combination of two Greek words, kata, about, and then halu, which means the whole. So Catholic, in its ancient form, means about the whole. Well, about the whole what? Well, according to the creed, the whole church the whole church. I mean, we like to focus on the parts and pieces and denominations and schisms and ensuring that we get it all right. That's usually the focus, but but rather seeing all the diversity as necessary parts that belong to the whole, well, that is what it means to be Catholic. And that's why I love da Vinci's painting. I mean, look at it. That, That is it. That's the whole thing. That's the essence and microcosm of the whole church. At the table are fishermen and tax collectors and God's own son and Judas the betrayer who is said to be in this very picture already filled with the devil himself. And so you see everyone and everything belongs at this table. It's only when we begin putting boundaries and fences around this table that the world begins to look like something less than love. As we heard from this morning's New Testament reading, as this table grows and expands, it becomes less and less and less like a table or a particular church and more and more like a temple comprised of human flesh. About this temple comprised of human flesh, it's often referred to as church, for as the creed calls it, the Holy Catholic Church. Church. Maybe you're embarrassed to tell people in Portland that you go to a church. I'm sometimes embarrassed to say that I'm a pastor, Seems like it needs a lot of explanation, doesn't it? And so what does church mean? Well, church, the word for church is in the Greek ekklesia, ekklesia, which literally refers to a legislative assembly or to a political body. This word was around long before the English word church. And so you see, the church is supposed to be the political body of Christ here on earth. I know we say let's not get into politics, But to be religious, to follow in Jesus, to be part of the church, is intentionally a politic in the world. Which is to say, we Jesus followers are to embody Jesus' way of life here in this world. Which is to say, Jesus' way of life, death, and resurrection is a politic. 
Jesus' way of repentance return to our deepest selves? That is a politic. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, in which the least of these belong and have a place in the heavenly kingdom, it's a politic. Jesus' Sermon in the synagogue in Luke 4, when he declared freedom from bondage, like maybe incarceration and police reform, or healing for the sick, like maybe universal health care reform, or release for the oppressed, again, incarceration reform, and the proclamation of God's favor on everyone and everything, which ex- extends to the least of these and marginalized in every society for generation to generation to generation. This is a politic. And ironically, the church has lost its politic of Jesus. You see, our life together, the way that we engage, the convictions that we hold, the good that we nurture and participate in, these aren't merely Christian behaviors. No. These are spirit-filled ways of making manifest Jesus' body, his politic on earth. Like da Vinci's painting, one table at a time until the entire world becomes a temple marked by love within which God fully dwells through human love. In one more clause in this portion of the creed, which reads, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. <sighs> Let's say that together. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Can we say that one more time? I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I wanted us to say it out loud because it's so very important. And I think many of us have lost its goodness over the past five or six years, don't you think? Do you remember back when COVID came around and I was, we were just talking about it and Trump said it'll be gone by Easter a little over two years ago? And then, and then Trump got COVID. Remember that? Anything move in your heart when you read that news? I remember praying a prayer. God, this is your chance. <laughs> I remember thinking it, and I was talking with my kids, and I didn't share that with my kids because I didn't want to, you know, darken their souls. <laughs> but, but I could see the same thought in their eyes. I could see it. And a few weeks afterward, I remember reflecting on that desire, and I realized that it caused me to feel unsettled. And it's safe for me to talk about Trump because he's this person that I don't know, and he's got this label, and he's this past president, so we can all talk about it. But if I'm being more personal, I could give you some other names, right, of people who have deeply hurt me. And if I'm being honest, uh, that causes me to feel a little unsettled. Longing for the demise of an enemy is in a similar vein to believing that bombs are the answer or that war makes things better or that death is the answer, or that lock them up and throw the key away is the answer, or that build that wall, if not on the border, at least between my home and that home, or our church and that church. And this reminds me of the parable of the unmerciful servant. Do you remember that parable? A king's servant owes him millions of dollars and cannot possibly repay. He cannot possibly repay. So he begs for mercy. And the king, we're told, forgives him his debt. Can you imagine being forgiven millions and millions of dollars? What would you do if you were forgiven all of that debt? Well, the forgiven servant immediately goes out, finds a servant that owes him a few pennies, and he violently demands repayment. Why? Well, there's only one reason, which is the servant cannot fathom that he's actually forgiven. He's actually behaving as though he's still in debt. 
And that's why he's acting this way. It's very easy as humans to live from a place of debt, for none of us are perfect. Well, as the king hears about his servant's lack of generosity, he throws him into prison until he's able to pay off his debt, which, of course, will never happen because you cannot make money in prison, which is to say that you cannot forgive if you are imprisoned by your own inability to receive forgiveness. Which brings us to this third picture of this parable. I love this painting. It's by 16th century Italian painter Domenico Fetti. It's titled, The Parable of the Unforgiving Servant. Let's just pause for a moment and take in this picture. Notice that the unforgiving servant is above, standing over in power, leaning over and even stepping on another human. His head is down, his lips are pursed, and his hands are clenched around this man's neck. And while perhaps we've never done something like this physically, I think we've all probably felt this lack of forgiveness in our hearts, right? Heart down, heart pursed, heart clenched. Maybe think of that moment or remember that person. Our hearts can get to this place of lacking forgiveness very quickly. Can you feel it? Now, with the content of this painting in our minds, I'd like to ask, does the behavior of the unforgiving servant make any sense? Well, if a person lives within an economy of vengeance, where vengeance replaces mercy, then yes, it actually makes a lot of sense. Because a person abiding in an economy of vengeance cannot believe in nor receive forgiveness themselves, even if it's bestowed upon them by a king. And so without a doubt, such a person living within an economy of vengeance would perpetuate vengeance. Kind of like a parent spanking a child, telling your child not to hit anymore. It just perpetuates violence. Such a person could not know, trust, or believe in forgiveness. Therefore, such a person could not forgive. Is, is this starting to make some sense? You see, such a person is not literally thrown into prison by a king. Instead, such a person already exists within a prison. Such a person is already tortured because in an economy of vengeance, a person cannot personally know and receive forgiveness. All debts, which always feel like a fortune, cannot be fully repaid. And in contrast to this economy of vengeance, Jesus explains an economy of forgiveness where our debts, every single one of them, I'll say it again, every single one of our debts in the economy of Jesus is forgiven. And I think an important question for us to ask that this parable and this painting rouse for us is, can we trust in an economy of forgiveness? Like, do we really deeply, pervasively, in our deepest selves, believe in an economy of divine forgiveness? Oh, Mike, you don't know what I've done. True. And you are forgiven. Mike, I do the same damn thing over and over and over again. True. And you are forgiven. Now certainly make amends as far as it is possible and of course learn from your mistakes and take practical steps forward and absolutely cultivate habits that are wise and good. But you, whoever you are, whatever you have done, you are forgiven. You are embraced by the divine. You belong in this kingdom, in this body, in this household, within this economy of God. This whole idea of forgiveness could be an entire sermon, couldn't it? Maybe an entire sermon series. 
I'm guessing we could probably talk about this every Sunday throughout an entire year because it raises so many questions about our own failures and I think especially about the failures of others. Like, Mike, you have no idea what that person did to me or you have no idea what that group did to me or you have no idea how those words or that act of violence or abuse or betrayal has impacted my life and you are right, I have no idea. I do not know what has happened to you. And for some of you, I cannot possibly imagine the pain and anguish that you have experienced at the hands of others. And I'm not intending to say that you simply choose to forgive and poof. You feel all better. And I'm not intending to say that forgiveness means that a person has no consequences. And I'm not intending to say that forgiveness means that you suppress and forget what has been done to you. Forgiveness can take time. Forgiveness is often a process. Forgiveness may benefit by therapy. Forgiveness may mean writing a letter or confronting that person who harmed you and saying, what you did was not okay. It has scarred me. I don't want to hear from you, but I want to declare to you, not okay. Forgiveness can and may mean a million wise and proactive little steps day by day and year by year. And that work is deeply good Christian work that surprisingly doesn't just free those who have harmed us, but in that freedom we find our own freedom. If we are not intentional about moving toward forgiveness, then that thing or that moment or that person that we have locked away in a prison where we long for them to be tortured, well, you see, that thing, that moment, that person is not alone because we are locked up and imprisoned alongside them. Like Fetty's painting, heads down, lips pursed, hearts clenched, all the while the Holy Spirit whispers inspiration. Forgiveness will set you free. Forgiveness will set you free. It's hard. It will take all of you. It will be recurring, maybe even moment by moment and day by day, but forgiveness will. Forgiveness will set you free. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, and the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Chaos is opportunity for new life. Inspiration in our knowing rouses wholeness in this world. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. We are all, every one of us, welcome at this divine table, and together we become a politic in the world that's dedicated to making love manifest in every form. And... I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Heart broken and bleeding, but open, broken open, and wildly and wonderfully alive. Will you pray with me? Spirit of God, fashion today's chaos into new life. Fill our weary hearts with hope and make love manifest today. this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Mm-hmm.